My name is Anda Ginska, and this is Pros and Content. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Notch, a digital content intelligence platform. I'm a massive data nerd who's fallen in love with storytelling. And so on the Pros and Content podcast, we will be featuring a series of really incredible leaders who believe in storytelling and who have different perspectives on the importance, measurement, scalability, and optimization of storytelling. Boosting morale and fostering community has never been more important as we continue to connect virtually. Today, we present the sixth roundtable in our series, hosted once again by Anda Ganska and Rachel Tipograph. They bring our panelists together to talk about how to enhance morale while working remotely, all while prioritizing wellness and mental health. This episode was recorded on April 23rd, 2020. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Anda! It's another Thursday. I know. It feels like I actually get so much energy just from knowing that we're going to be doing this. It's like my, my peak of the week. And Monday's like my, ugh, I'm waiting for Thursday. So excited to I think be back with you. Yeah, I think we're just looking for routines any way that we can find them right now. It gives us sanity. Uh, and I'm so happy to be back with you. I think this it's is- It's like routine and, and some level of- um, I guess partnership, just feeling less lonely because we're all so isolated. And I think mm-hmm. if nothing else, this forum allows us to come together and just feel like less insane and less lonely. So uh, I appreciate it. Yeah, it's the, the most affordable form of therapy. Um, yeah, exactly. So I think this is week six or seven. I don't even know how to figure that out. I even forgot like how many days we've been in this. Like sometimes I forget what day it is. It's, it's a bit fluid at the moment. Yeah. Um, well, it seems like this week's theme is appropriate, uh, given where we are, which is all about boosting morale and not just from a consumer standpoint, but for us as leaders, like what I keep saying to my team and, you know, all my friends and my family is that I'm prioritizing my mental health above everything else. Because if I can't show up and try to be my best self, nothing is going to work out and work. And so I'm excited to hear from everyone to hear how they're boosting morale on an individual level, a team level, a corporate level. And I think it's the appropriate time in, in this COVID journey for us to be talking about this. And, uh, you know, just to share some recent anecdotes about what's happening in terms of morale at Micmac, I mean, Anda, you know me really well. Like, I have to shake things up or I get disinterested. And so for the first few weeks of COVID, I was doing this thing where I would randomly call Micmacers and just check in with them. And then after doing that for a few weeks, I've realized that my entire calendar was just checking in with people and that wasn't an efficient my time. So this week I tried a new format, which I'm really enjoying, which is I'm doing lunches and drinks with like five to seven Micmacers at a time, all from different departments. And I think it's been great for me and for the people who've participated so far. Um, And then the other thing is, I don't know when you do reviews, but it's review season for us. So we're doing like Q1 reviews now. And we asked a new question in the review, which is what is your superpower? And we're now gonna be creating like a really cool graphic presentation and showcasing to the entire company what everyone's superpower is. So my big thing is trying to figure out every which way we can right now to celebrate people in the micro and the macro moments. What in the world are you doing other than looking fabulous to boost morale? 
It's just red lipstick and I only do it once a week. So, <laughs> so um, first of all, it's kind of ironic that we're doing this really awesome roundtable every week talking about how do we navigate COVID because I feel like for the first time I'm genuinely feeling fatigue talking about COVID. Um, and so I actually think it's an interesting uh, kind of meta situation. How do we think about navigating COVID without now talking about COVID. And I actually see that coming up in some of the content that we're seeing come out of some of these really large enterprises and brands. Um, more and more, our customers are telling us, we kind of just want to go back to talking about other stuff uh, or maybe talking about how to navigate this time without mentioning COVID. I think a few weeks ago, everyone was just navigating towards it. Probably the mentions of that word were kind of through the roof. And now it's really just, how do we step away from it? And I think it's happening because we don't know, it's like a crisis without a real end. Um, and because of that, I don't think we kind of, we wanna keep talking about it until we know that we can pinpoint how we get out of it. Um, so in terms of how we're navigating this as a team, a couple of things. First, we, a while back, we created um, a mental health benefit. Um, and so everyone at Notch actually gets a stipend to just use towards whatever they want for their mental health. Uh, the program is called Ocean, but then we also do Ocean lunches. And so we just kind of organize every couple of weeks um, a Zoom where we eat together and we just talk about the anxiety of navigating this, the uncertainty, the grief for those of us who um, on the team who have lost someone they, they love. Um, and then separately, I've really been ramping up the usage of a product called 15.5. I mean, there's different products out there, but it enables me to track the priorities I think what happens a lot during a crisis, especially if what you do as a company becomes more relevant, is it kind of just feels like someone's dropped a grenade and everyone's running around like chickens with their heads cut off. And it's easy to confuse activity with progress. So what I'm trying to do is constantly bring the leadership team back to their priorities. So I'm tracking all of our priorities in there, but this, this really cool and simple feature that I love is that it asks you how you feel every week. And so I'm tracking how everyone in the company feels and how that's moving um, week on week. And it's been really helpful to know what teams are really struggling that I need to kind of jump into and make a bunch of calls and just make sure that we're there for them. So those are just a couple of things that we're doing. I love that. That should be a Salesforce plugin. And then you can marry that with client health. Yeah, um, I agree. Well, listen, I think no one wants to hear from us really, and everyone wants to hear from all these leaders. So I'm excited to, to start it off. Let's see. So next up, uh, we have Stacy from Genpact. Welcome, Stacy. Thanks for having me. For sure. Um, so Stacy, you are the SVP and Chief Marketing Officer of Genpact. And I'd love for you to um, maybe kick it off by telling us a little bit about what Genpack does. And also yesterday when we were talking, you were so passionate about some of the work that um, you've been doing just in terms of predictive intelligence and the impact that it has. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Um, and then I'll jump into the rest of my questions. Great. Sure. Happy to uh, give you that background. So we are, Genpact is a professional services company. We're a digital transformation company and we help with, think, complex end-to-end -end processes. So think about all sorts of messy things, your supply chain, your finance and accounting, your operations. So all of these very complex things that need lots of digital interventions and lots of expertise to figure out how to make businesses run more effectively, more efficiently, and to actually get better outcomes. So that's what Genpact does. 
And as, as you were saying on the, at this point in time, right, with all of the things, and Laura, you were, you were speaking about it as well, there are so many critical things that, that needs to happen now so that society as we know it, this, this altered version of society, continues to function. And so one of the things that we've been doing a lot of is actually celebrating, celebrating the moments where our people are making massive, a massive difference in, in the lives of individuals. So the predictive analytics that you were talking about, so, you know, we've been using predictive analytics to help, you know, medical device companies get the predict hotspots to get the right devices into the right places at the right times. And so we're getting emails and things from clients saying, congratulations, your work, the one movement you made, that prediction you made, saves 10 people this weekend. What is more rewarding than that, that you come in on a Monday and you're like, huh, my work saved 10 people this weekend. And so I think in all of this you know, craziness, um, that ability to celebrate what people are doing that's making a difference, I think has actually been incredibly rewarding for our people and has also renewed the sense of purpose for why we get up every day and do what we do anyway. So I wanted you to share that because I think it's indicative of one of the many stories that I think a lot of companies are finding right now. And as a CMO, I'm curious when you hear a story like that, like what's your first thought? I mean, beyond just like, oh, yeah, I, I, you know, I work for a company that's having an impact. I'm assuming your brain immediately goes to how can we tell that story? Where do we say it? What channels, et cetera. So how have you thought about harnessing some of those stories? And then as a, as a kind of context to that, I'm just curious, what are the areas where you've decided to really lean in from an investment standpoint as a marketer versus lean out? Yeah, so it's a great question. So I think that, you know, when you, when you look at where we've all been over the last eight weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, six weeks, however long people's journeys have been, right? So for us, as soon as this was, was evident in China, we knew that we had to prepare for how we were able to deliver work globally immediately. So for us, this started in January, as soon as China realized what, you know, the, the situation that, that we were all in. So we've been in this now for, for what feels like a, an eternity. And with, where the beginning of this was about, at Lara, as you were talking about, the actual, the comms and the crisis elements of actually making sure that we were responding in the right way. We've got 100,000 people around the world making sure that they were safe and that we were able to deliver the work that we do. As we've gotten deeper into this, and all of those things are now fundamentally you know, established, right? People are working from home. People are, being, are able to deliver the work. What we've seen now is that we've, we've moved into, we've pivoted into the next stage of this collective conversation. So to the point you're making, all of these good stories that were coming out we immediately said, how do we harness them? And how do we harness them across all the things that we do? So back to what Laura was saying about the marketing and communications being, being hand in hand, they also, both marketing and communications is, are, are you know, one uh, integrated under, under, under me, that ability to quickly find those stories, not only use those stories internally so that our people could see the work that we were all doing and feel good about that. Um, externally, how do we get those stories out? Certainly social media, but even you know, reporters, right? They're, they've been looking for other stories to tell. So how do you make sure you're telling those? So that was the basic 
of where it started from a comms perspective. But then we looked at this and we said, we're actually sitting on a gold mine of stories. So how do we mine that across everything we do? So you look at our thought leadership people. We said, okay, look at these trends that we're seeing. We're seeing big trends in predictive analytics. We're, you know, we're seeing trends in a bunch of areas. How do you turn that into the next round, mine those stories for the next round of thought leadership, the next trends that we're going to put out? We pulled in all of our client referenceability and our client success, success teams and saying, now we've got a treasure trove of brand new stories. How do we go into that treasure trove and actually start to prioritize what are those next case studies? What are those next references that are coming out? So for us, it was really about looking at what we were getting and saying, how do we use that across every single part of our function? Because frankly, it's creating a lot of really exciting and inspirational content. And then to so answer- CC, yeah, go ahead. sorry. No, 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 you go. I was going to answer the second part of your question about where we're focusing, but go ahead, answer yours. I'm sure I can get to that one. I, I was going to say, you know, we we see so much content across the realm of content, and um, we've been able to kind of notice that it all started with, obviously, as as we all know, I think we've all seen that YouTube video in these troubled times, in these unprecedented times, et cetera. Um, and then it was like, okay, here's the donation that we're making, and here's how we're helping everyone. Then it went to more utility content like how do i survive this financially how do i survive this technologically how do i survive this mentally etc um and it sounds like now it's becoming more and more about inspiration and hope um and just surfacing some of these stories have you seen a, a transition in the themes how fast are you seeing that cycle go through and what do you think is next in terms of storytelling yeah so i think so so you've hit on a lot of important things there i think cycle time is key here, right? So, so, so cycle times are now so dramatically condensed because the, the world is changing so quickly around us. Um, so what used to be weeks and months, we now actually look at in hours and days. So I do think it's, it's, it's it, the things that applied two weeks ago almost seem, oh, cute. Oh, that's cute that that was relevant two weeks ago. It's like, we, we feel like we're in a completely different world every two weeks. So I do think for us, first of all, um, we have relied very heavily on our data, right? Because, and that's not just looking at, oh, what does last month's data show us so that we can, uh, you know, adjust our spend, adjust our campaigns for next month. It's now week to week. How is what people are choosing to consume? How is that changing? And so I think on the, the things you pointed out as the, as the recent trends and the shifts, I think is absolutely accurate. The thing that we're seeing now, in addition to wanting those stories, wanting those inspirational stories, we're also seeing the shift to what's next. So now it is, what is the new normal? What am I going to expect? And it's not just the short term, what does returning to work look like? It's that longer term, right? So what are the things that maybe were, for, again, we're in the B2B space. So the types of projects and things that might've been less important now, but that in the new normal, we're going to see come up, you know, you know, come up with much more focus. So that new normal for us is the next place everyone is going. And frankly, when we look at the content that we're preparing and that we're launch, we launch new content every day, it is really about helping our clients navigate that new normal environment. That's not there yet, but, but you have to be planning for it now.
when we were talking yesterday, you were saying how happy you are that you're not in Manhattan right now. So I think the new normal for a lot of Manhattanites is that they're going to live in the countryside or in Boston, like you. <laughs> I know it's well, it's funny because this is what we were saying. So I've I was in in New York for almost 15 years, and I've been in Boston now for for a little for over five. And I and my husband and I were sort of taking a walk with our kids, not running into any other human beings. We can we can actually <laughs> do this in the suburbs. You can take a walk and not see people. And I said, this is the first time truly since we have left Manhattan that I actually feel grateful I don't live in Manhattan I've never been able to say that one day in my life other than than COVID so there you go (laughs) I really hope New York can come back to its greatness because I I miss being stuck to other people on the subway I can't wait to get back to that Um, so I wanted to ask you Stacey you mentioned yesterday something about um, focusing on the things that are in your control versus out of your control and it, it resonated with me because I think that's one of the main things I struggle with from a mental perspective. Uh, as an entrepreneur, I think we all have kind of big egos and we assume that we can control a lot more than we can. And during a crisis like this, it's, it's really mind boggling. And so focusing on the things that I can actually influence versus not has been like, I just have to constantly remind myself of that. Um, you were talking about it in the context of your team and helping your team navigate through this. What else are you saying to them? What sort of processes and habits and rituals have you invented in the last few weeks? Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, I think honesty and transparency are, are, are and very frequent communication, I think, are the, the, the hallmarks, at least for, for me and, and for our teams, of this time, right? We don't have all the answers, um, but we can be honest about what it is we see. And I think, Andy, you and I talked about this yesterday, you know, the reality is um, many of us, in addition to being professionals, are, you know, we have spouses, we have, could have children at home that we're now figuring out, you know, how to help them learn. Like, I didn't know I was also going to be doing homeschooling, right? And so just in some of us have, you know, parents we're taking care of. We all have different, different situations. So being very honest about that. Um, so I have, um, my husband and I sort of now split up um, which uh, calls, which which virtual classes that of my um, eight-year-old, my third grader, of which classes we're going to cover. And so when I have to get off a call for my 11 a.m. social studies, that I cover social studies at 11 a.m., so I, I literally, as I'm getting off the call, I say, I have to go, I have a hard stop, I have third grade social studies right now. Just even giving that permission that says, we're, we're all just doing the best we can. So if you've got to stop doing your very important work to go do third grade social studies, that's what you got to do. You got to go do it. So I think there's that level of honesty and transparency um, and, and really um, frequently communicating. So I have, I do all hands town halls every week. And and we we literally say, as long as these are helpful, we'll do them every single week. And every week everyone says, yes, they're helpful. Let's keep doing them. Um, And this is where the shift to what we can control becomes important. So one of the things we do on those calls is we actually talk about the marketing pivot. We can control the marketing pivot, right? We can control what choices we make on what content we're going to focus on, on what campaigns we're going to pivot to. So we might not know where all this is going to land, but we do know the fundamentals of we're going to focus on our data. We're going to focus on the priorities of making sure that we're helping our clients focus on the things they need to do right this second to get to tomorrow, to get to the other side of this issue. And so I think there's a little bit of power in being able to bring 
really cool ideas and fun things that we're seeing where the team is experimenting with, with new marketing activations. And so we can control that. We know how to just do our best marketing in any scenario. So I think that's also gives people the ability to work on the stuff they can work on and get less fussed about the things that frankly are not going to be in our control. Well, Stacey, thank you so much for that. Um, every time I interact with you, I get so much energy. I, I love like the energy and the positivity you bring. So I can tell that your team probably does not struggle with any fatigue because you bring that energy to the table. Every <laughs> meeting. I appreciate it. Um, I wanted to move on to our next speaker. And then after that, we're going to take a couple of questions from the audience for everyone. So um, I wanted to move on to welcome Venu. Welcome, welcome. Dialing in from Kansas City. Hi, Anna. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. So, um, Vinu, you're the Chief Marketing Officer of H&R Block. Um, I'm, I'm looking through your bio. You have over two decades of marketing and digital experience. You were at TD Bank before as the CMO um, and Head of Corporate and Public Affairs. And before that, you were at Ally Financial, who's uh, one of my favorite customers. Um, tell us a little bit about how you've seen this crisis evolve from, from the standpoint of H&R Block, but also with the financial hat on from your previous roles. I mean, it's revealing something that I think we all are recognizing just by you know, looking around our neighborhoods and talking to our friends, which is that um, you know, we are in a scenario where most Americans are $400 away from real challenges. And when things like this happen, it sort of reveals that. And then the real burden is on what do we do together to, to not only deal with it now, but think about how we deal with it on a more systemic basis looking ahead. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's just the reality of where we are. But it's, uh, to me, uh, I'm, I, I look at it and I think about, uh, it's almost a gift in a sense. It's allowing us to really think about what we're about why we're here and what we're trying to do. Uh, and this moment, uh, now it's been about a month, I guess, for most of us being at home and, and, and engaging in this way. Um, I, for me, it's given a lot of time, even just in between meetings, uh, because I'm alone, uh, other than my wife being in another room, uh, to reflect and have that few minutes where I'm not just running from a meeting to another meeting. Uh, and I think that's been really wonderful uh, uh, and a real chance to lean into this idea that what can we do not only as a company but as an individual uh, to be helpful in that. It's a really interesting uh, comment around taking this time to reset. I've heard this from a lot of people just asking ourselves uh, much more fundamental questions that we didn't have time for uh, yeah. to kind of ask before. Um, have you been doing that from a brand standpoint? Yeah, I, you know, we we always had a view, a very a very clear view of what we were about and why we were about. And just to just say to other chief marketers who will certainly understand it is to help and inspire confidence to clients and communities everywhere, which has real resonance and real value. Uh, you know, we have eighty thousand tax professionals, and these tax professionals are in every main street around the country in ten thousand offices. This is a large operation, twenty one million clients. Uh, and so we are very much a part of the fabric of all of our all of the communities that we serve in, because the tax pro tends to be a little bit like the doctor. You know, you tell them a lot of things that you wouldn't otherwise tell people, 
and they engage with you in something that's really, really material to you because you might walk out of that tax moment with a refund of say $2,000. And that's a big amount of money to get on one day. Uh, and so, so it really becomes a very, very emotional, real relationship that people hold on to for years. Uh, and so we know that our tax pros value that so much that they will take the side of the client over the side of the corporation any day and twice on Sunday. And that's fine by us, right? Um, so how do we sort of harness that reality into something that's more tangible for not just our employees at the individual level, but also as a company? And so we've always thought about that. And we've always said that's what we want to do. But if you look at it practically, you know, how we've thought about it in the last month, month and a half, it just makes every little decision more crystallized. And we sort of reflect back on what, what would our brand and purpose tell us to do, and then really try and take that lens into answering the questions that we do. You know, we went to a digital drop-off model, a primarily drop-off model, pretty early in this crisis. And it's because we are really managing between not only the health of our clients, uh, the health of our, our tax pros, the health of our business. Uh, and so all of those things come to play and it's the lenses that we work with that help us make those decisions quickly and effectively. And um, it's made me really proud to be here. I'm curious because you talk about this emotional connection and so much of that um, is formed because of this face-to-face -face interaction. Mm -hmm. um, I've been asking myself, you know, what is the future of enterprise sales in a world where you can't really meet people face-to-face, -face, I'm assuming you must be asking yourselves the same question, you know, back to the point that Lara was making around uh, kind of online engagement and digital products. How are you now thinking about the evolution of, of your product, which is a hybrid of this face-to-face -face interaction as well as the digital side of what you do? Yeah, uh, yeah. so half our clients use our digital-only product already. So they, they essentially go through our, our online platform and, and, uh, and, and complete their taxes. But, but more than half of our clients don't. And, and for them, that relationship with a, with a human being or an engagement with a human being is super important. Uh, and I don't think that's going to go away. I think it's going to, you know, having a tax pro do your taxes is a really, really nice thing to get done. Uh, and... The, the art is how do we do that in a way that is useful for consumers in an environment where they don't necessarily need to or want to be sitting right in front of you. Today, I'm talking to you, Anta, and you're in somewhere in northern New, New York. York. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, that, hasn't, that doesn't make our engagement any less significant or meaningful. In fact, we probably can get more engagements done today because I don't have to actually travel to you or you don't have to travel to me. So there are ways of making this uh, uh, valuable um, and, and we're leaning into that. Uh, we always were, but this is uh, obviously gonna accelerate how not only our, our clients get comfortable with it, our tax pros get comfortable, more comfortable with it. Uh, and so it just allows us to move at a faster pace in terms of making those changes. And as a marketing team, what were the areas that you decided to lean into um, as soon as this happened? Or was there kind of a step back, let's kind of save Save, like keep the powder dry for a later date when, when we know it's going to work a lot better? Well, when it first started, we did the things that you would expect, right? So we, we, we edited our, our TV spot. We changed the, the way that the narrative was on, on digital. We changed how the site presented itself. So those things happened because we were clearly more interested in service and less interested in, in messages that sounded too selly or salesmany, I guess. Um, but the thing that I'm most proud of in, when I look back at that moment, and even now, 
uh, in terms of what was the biggest pivot we made. And I'll equate it back to, I started my career at, at FedEx, the, uh, the shipping company. The, the, and, uh, and back in those days, uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas were just really, really tough for FedEx because everyone wanted to ship stuff. And at midnight, these packages would be loaded onto, sorted and loaded onto the planes, and then they would fly out at 2 a.m. So the planes would come in at midnight, they'd get sorted, loaded, and then go out at 2 a.m. And we always had a really tough time getting those packages done in that time period. And every year, we would essentially close up the marketing activities and say, during Thanksgiving and Christmas, the most important thing you can do is go load packages. So I'd put on my steel-stowed shoes and head off there and you know, be loading packages onto the truck, onto the plane, because that was the most important thing we could do for the company. And that kind of uh, an ethos is something that I, I really valued. And... So when I look at what we did over here, the biggest thing that happened was that consumers and our clients said, we need to know more. We don't understand what's going on. We don't know what the stimulus thing is. We're, we're worried about whether we can still get our refund in time. This is a big moment for us. We're scared. Um, and we don't know how to untangle all this information about these different acts that are being presented. We don't know who to trust. And so what became a, a, a group of people that would historically be doing marketing campaigns really evolved into a group of people, designers, writers, DevOps folks, dot-com folks, that were basically spending their time understanding the facts and then translating that into consumable information for our clients on our site uh, in ways that they could use it. And uh, so that's what made me really proud. Uh, you know, we got our stimulus calculator up first faster than anybody. So we were ahead of CNBC in showing that. Those are the kinds of things that I was super proud of because it said, you know what, if we just focus on what is needed um, and not worry about our specialty, um, we will actually add more value to not only our what we contributed, but also what the company needs. And so that's, those are the things that we did. I actually wrote down, what's the most important thing you could do? I really like that. I think especially in a time of crisis, it's a really good one to galvanize the team around. Thank Indeed. you for that, Manu. Um, Rachel, I want to pass it over to you. I know you have a couple of questions and maybe the poll results. Yeah. Um, why don't we start with the poll results? So, all right, we've 2X'd our content consumption. I'm not surprised. The 7% that have decreased, what are you doing with your life? Um, thank you maybe all. They're learning how to play the guitar. Just like yeah, they're, they're with me. Uh, <laughs> so, I would love to pick everyone's brain who's on the call. Uh, so if you want to unmute yourself. So I'm going to take some questions from the Q&A and I'm going to read it verbatim. So first one, in the current context, is sales revenue still the primary determinant of positive marketing activity? If so, how do you rely on that measure without seeming like ambulance chasing? And if not, what is the more valid metric right now? So what is the new ROI in marketing during the time of COVID? Who wants to be the first esteemed guest to answer this? Well, I'll take a stab at it. This is Robin Matlock and I'm from VMware. Our business is a B2B enterprise business. So you gotta put that in context. But for us, quality of engagement. And I measure marketing engagement by you know, are they digesting content? It's usually content of some kind, but I think it's really important right now. Customers, even those that aren't maybe in the heart of solving COVID-related problems for their business, 
we sell to IT technologists, so they're doing a lot of research, they're gathering information, they're getting smarter about things certified. So I'm really tracking, you know, what is that content consumption and how are they engaging? And for my sellers, that's important insight. Got it. So I can, I can jump in. Oh, did you want to go back, Rachel? To... No, 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 please. Okay, I'm, I'm Barb Goose, and I'm the CMO at John Hancock. For us, um, while sales are still important, honestly, we had to figure out a way to continue to have sales. Um, so in parallel to that, to us, the biggest metric that became important was tracking customer sentiment and NPS, because um, how is the experience for customers how you know were thing in, in perhaps where some things are changing what what was the feedback customers were giving us what were the, the daily verbatims and we started looking at that every single day um, to kind of tell um, what was going on and, and it was interesting because we've been, been able to track uh, an overall sentiment going from just uh, fear and you know ex you know what the unknown and people being super super scared. Um, and now people have just lost patience. Um, and so it's, it's helps us actually think about the experiences. And as we want to um, ensure that we continue to deliver sales, knowing that just consumers have no patience, that they're, um, you know, in this strange environment, they don't know how long it's going to last. There's still a lot of unknowns, but um, helping to make things simple. Um, making easier decisions, like helping to make their lives better. That's, um, that's really what's guiding us, a lot of that customer sentiment. So I have a question about that. You know, there's so much, um, there's so many things that we can't control right now in terms of like, you know, consumer mindset. So how do you figure out the effectiveness of your marketing versus the already mindset of a consumer that might be out of your control? So, so it's clearly a, a balance. There's a number of problems we can't fix, but today in a verbatim, a customer said, you know, how am I supposed to go to a notary? And, you know, we do have a process for this, but maybe it wasn't as clear or as known um, for everybody. So for some, for some of the things we actually have fix, fixes and it's just a matter of putting them more front and center. And in other cases, there are things that we can do to, um, you know, to make things um, a little bit easier. We, um, we were in the life insurance business. We didn't have um, fully digital claims. And so obviously it's, so it would be so weird to think to send a check and you can't even get into your bank. Some banks are by appointment. So, um, you know, that became, that moved to the top of the list for us to um, fully implement uh, because we knew that that was, you know, it became an imperative for the business, but, you know, super important for customers. Yeah, um, 100%. All right, I think we're going to move the show on the road to get to everyone. Thank you guys for chiming in. So next up, in from Hershey, Pennsylvania, Doug, you here? I'm here. Awesome. So yeah. everyone, this is Doug Stratton, the Chief Digital Officer at the Hershey Company. Well, I can only imagine what your life has been like the last seven weeks based on the data that I'm seeing from the other side. You know, as an industry, where we thought online grocery would be in the year 2025, we arrived there essentially on March 15th. Yes, um, basically two years of growth in about two months. Um, Absolutely wild. So, yeah, I think um, 
It is absolutely wild. I think there's, you know, there's a couple things from from um, my perspective uh, that um, it actually leads to the question that was just asked in terms of, you know, where you're getting inspiration. And I think the interesting thing about, um, you know, our company and the category that we participate in is that it's so centered on, um, you know, family occasion, sharing um, a little bit of goodness for yourself. Um, those types of things, and all those things are super important right now. So, um, so there's an element of both the fact that um, we're now living in the world of contactless transaction mm-hmm. writ large, not just contactless, you know, credit card transactions, but just contactless period. And um, you know, that's making a big difference in, in terms of the way people are behaving and shopping, obviously. Um, and so that's a boon in one sense. Um, and then also to be in a category that is, uh, and with some brands that are, you know, really loved and kind of comfort people at times like this, you know, it's been really, really interesting. Um, but I won't lie, very, um, uh, very intense, very intense. Yeah, I can only imagine. Um, it's funny what you say about n- like nostalgia and brands that people love. You know, this is the whole theory why everyone's making bread right now is that we're trying to get back to simple times. You have so many brands within the, the Hershey company portfolio. Are you seeing consumers over index right now in some of your oldest brands? Um, well, I would say more broadly what you'd say, they're over indexing on the things that you would imagine would bring comfort. So if you actually look at the food categories overall, there's a, there's a couple different uh, food categories that are doing really, really well. You know, ice cream, for example. Um, again, kind of treats for yourself, treats for your family. Um, things that can be shared amongst the family are trending really well. And chocolate just happens to be at the top of that list. So mm-hmm. that naturally benefits, um, you know, Hershey brands. And we are seeing that in the data. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to, um, uh, to the previous comment around inspiration, um, a lot of the, um, you know, we do analytics on, uh, on our properties. A lot of what we see, of course, is, is focused around recipe. And as you can imagine, with more people staying home, um, and trying to design ways to make their family feel more comfortable or to occupy their time, those things become more important. And so uh, ensuring that we adjust our messaging and the access to that type of uh, content is super important. Mm. So with the, the growth of e-com and probably the heightened importance of your team right now within the organization, has your day-to-day role changed over the last few weeks? Um, yeah, I would say it has. Uh, so the, I would say the, the elements of the role that were more focused on, um, you know, I'd say, you know, enterprise transformation around broader digital um, strategy. Um, and even I would say um, some of the longer term kind of capability building has really taken, um, you know, an intellectual and activity based backseat to the needs of the business. Um, and so from that standpoint, you know, I would say, you know, much more balanced and, and uh, involved in the day to day on the digital commerce end of things, mm-hmm. you know, for obvious reasons. And, um, and it's one of those things, it's not, you know, when you look at what's happening, it's not just, um, it's not like we're seeing, you know, like a bump in growth in one area here or over here. And you're like, hmm, maybe that's a white, you know, maybe that's a white space that I can go explore and exploit. This is a, a wholesale fundamental transformation and so it's literally taking everything that you've that you've been you know planning for and modeling for and and whatnot for in some cases years and thinking that they were still maybe a year or two or three Mm -hmm. out and saying okay how can I do this type of stuff this type of work um, in a condensed time frame still keep the quality of the work up uh, you know make sure that we're not spending too much balancing with the needs of the, the broader business so that's 
that's, um, I would say that in a nutshell, that's the, the difference in the role and then the difference in the focus. Mm-hmm. How, how are you reorganizing your team right now around what's important? Like maybe there were a bunch of people who were working on things that you've had to press pause. Did you have to upskill them in new ways? Um, no, I would say we have a really flexible team and that we, you know, we really look at the way it's organized, I would say about every six months and, you know, make micro adjustments anyway, based on what we think is most important in the business. Um, the team is already really adept with agile, you know, uh, working, um, mm-hmm. as we adopted that a couple of years ago. So none of the tools that we're using now were even remotely, uh, foreign to anybody on my team. We had good ways of working and organization around that. Not perfect because it's an imperfect process, but um, in general comfort with it that, you know, um, you know, some, some folks might not have. I would say the, the biggest thing is um, if, you know, going back a couple of years when I started with the Hershey company, um, we specifically called out that the activities that the team would be focusing on were, were absolutely fundamental and ensuring that Hershey can survive another 125 years. And, you know, I do that as a way to kind of like open people's eyes and mm-hmm. shut people a little bit. But at the same time, I truly believe that if we do it right, we in some way, shape or form, whether they remember our names or our team or anything like that, we would have been, you know, a huge building block in the success of Hershey over a very long period of time. Um, I think what COVID has done is, you know, and we even said that when this thing was breaking and we were starting to, you know, go to, to work from home. Um, remember what we said our role was and think about the context of what we were saying. You know, we, we were kind of doing it tongue in cheek kind of, you know, to, mm-hmm. to motivate people and get them to like, listen, but now it was literally um, uh, manifestly true that uh, if we do our jobs really, really well um, over the next, over the past, you know, seven weeks, I would say seven or eight weeks. And then clearly at least to the end of the year, then we're setting ourselves up and our company up. Um, for continued success. So from that standpoint, I think that's motivating. It's also, frankly, exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 125 years, that's a long time. But I (laughs) I love that. Yeah. I love that as a mission statement. It actually makes me think um, when I went to Under Armour's campus in Baltimore for the first time, when you walk in, the first thing that it says is protect our house. Like that's the rallying cry of the company galvanizing your team around this mission. Let's have this thing last for another 125 years. I agree. That's inspirational. Well, I think, you know, if, if, you know, if we, if we break it down a little bit more, it's, it's, it's really geared to like what fundamentally um, the Hershey company was built on. So Hershey was, it was one of the first, if not the first mission driven, you know, purpose driven companies. So our largest shareholder is the Milton Hershey trust and its sole mission um, is to support and educate disadvantaged children. Hmm. Period. So everything that we do, everything that we sell, um, is going to benefit disadvantaged children, and we, you know, that's a big part of our culture. So, you know, that being able to, in one way, from a business perspective, create a foundation for the future success of the company, it's great for the company. I think everybody would feel proud about that. But it's probably you feel more proud because you know you're actually supporting a trust that that literally in perpetuity is, is going to try to help the most disadvantaged, disenfranchised. So I think that's really cool. And I think the, the, the other thing too is um, um, you introduced me as um, from Hershey, Pennsylvania. So it's not just the Hershey Chocolate Company or the Hershey Company rather. Um, it's Hershey PA that the entire town literally, um, you know, evolved and sprung from one man's vision. And so um, being successful in the here and now is 
um, utterly important to the communities in Hershey, um, to the community of Hershey, to the people that live in the community that work both for Hershey, but also are supporting the, the broader company through the business and services in the surrounding areas, whether they're farmers or service providers or whatever it might be. So we take those things really, really seriously. It's not just that we, you know, we have a company to run and we want to run it in the best way possible. Um, we have the trust that we need to support and we have a town named after us that we have to support. And so that becomes um, a really heady mix in terms of taking your role seriously and, and driving the business forward in a really tough time. Um, no, it's, that's, there's so much mission in everything that you just said. Um, I have one more question, because I know we're coming sure. up here time of all the things that you've been doing at a leadership level to anchor your team in what's important, create new types of rituals. What would you say you've learned about the culture at Hershey that you wanna make sure when we come back to work in whatever is, I'm putting air quotes, normal, that you yeah. wanna continue as an organization? So I think, you know, one of the benefits of COVID would be um, proving out to the organization that they can work in a different way. Um, because you're in central PA, because it's, a, it's, a, it's an old company with a very proud heritage, um, there's certain ways we approach things and look at things and do things, which are fantastic. I mean, there's a lot to love about Hershey. Um, but sometimes it can be hard to maybe make, make a transition to it into looking at business in a new way or using new tools. COVID has completely, you know, obliterated that kind of, you know, um, uh, I would say cultural wall. And so, you know, the adoption of the technologies and the remote ways of working has been overwhelmingly um, accepted. And a lot of people are like, why didn't we do this sooner? So there's, mm -hmm. there's a side benefit. The other thing I think is really interesting is that um, Hershey talks a lot about integrity and they talk a lot about trust. Um, so if you were to see, you know, a lot of the documents in and around the, the, the corporate, uh, mission and whatnot, you'd see those words, um, and the way we, you know, leadership behaviors and the way we, we, um, you know, talk to people about their performance and whatnot, those words will come up a lot. And like with every other organ, every organization though, there's always points of friction where can I trust this partner or is there an agenda? And I would say in, in general, you know, Hershey doesn't really have huge problems in that area. Um, which is fantastic. But at the same time, to the degree that we did, those have been obliterated as well. And they've really been obliterated because you just don't, in this kind of like environment, you do not have time to have to focus on uh, on who's right. You, you only have time really to focus on what's right. And so um, it's really been liberating. And actually in a lot of our leadership teams, we've talked about how we're actually thinking the team has become stronger mm -hmm. even though we're further apart than when we were in a, you know, in a building together um, because there's much more clarity of purpose and you want to maximize that time and be uh, exceptionally clear where you don't have the fuzziness when you're in a physical environment. Oh, I can catch up to that person later. It's much more an intentional kind of, here's what we need to do. Here's how we're going to do it. Speak up or forever hold your peace, move on. And uh, that's been inspiring. I, I love that distinction. No more who's right, but what's right. I am gonna take one question from the audience because you are actually the literal expert on this and I want everyone to learn from you. I don't know, we'll see. All right, so this is from the audience. Uh, Hershey, I saw in today's earnings that gum mints are struggling. How do you drive impulse behavior in a digital environment? So the first thing is um, the gum mints behavior is not, 
is, is a behavior that's not necessarily unique to digital. That behavior is because we have social distancing. So um, more so than the other brands and categories that we're in, mm. chocolate, um, those are very emotionally involved products, mm. whereas gum and mints are much more functional. And so, um, so when you don't have the, you, you know, the need to brush your teeth as often or worry about having to be talking to a client uh, and whatnot, you know, your use of, of gum and mints is probably going to go down. So there's a core kind of like um, consistent overall behavior um, that's actually going with that call out it from the earnings call. And the other thing in terms of impulse is, um, you know, digital is a really different environment. So yeah, you're not going through a checkout. Um, yeah, that see candy, buy candy, eat candy behavior, which, you know, is very important to, to our category, um, is not necessarily, you know, highly effective right now. Um, and a lot of people kind of default back to, well, what's that going to mean to digital? You know, how do you, how do you mimic impulse and digital? And the, the, the true answer is digital behaviors are different from physical behaviors. So what you do is you leverage the goodness of the digital behaviors for maximum opportunity. And if you do that right, if you're smart, then you're going to more than mitigate some of the issues you might have on the impulse end. Mm. Um, not that you don't have impulse, you still have that, but you're just dealing with that problem in a slightly different way by saying, well, what's unique about the channel that gives me an advantage versus focusing on the thing that's an inherent disadvantage. So hopefully that helps you out a little bit. Yeah, I just love it. We all have bad breath and we're not washing our hair. Well, thank you, Doug. <laughs> you're welcome, Rachel. Um, appreciate it. Anda, who is next? Um, so I was, I was, I started laughing, Doug, when you were talking about them. I did, don't know how I didn't add up that in my head, but yeah, you're right. I have not bought gum in a while. Um, so next up we have Robin Matlock from VMware. Welcome, Robin. Hello. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, actually, when you first dialed in, you were in this beautiful garden and it made me very jealous to know that you were in a much better weather than I am, but now you've been kinder to us and you moved indoors to not I think my, my laptop didn't like the sunshine as much as I did. I think it started having a little bit of an overheating problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Robin, um, you are the SVP and the CMO at VMware. It's a really big role. I think when, when you, I look at your background, I think, you know, you've been in technology, you've been in enterprise software, you're an expert on all things B2B. So I would really love to hear your perspective on how that sector and that world is affected compared to some of the consumer uh, products that we were just talking about. Um, so I'd love to hear your perspective on that. And then separately, as you're talking through that, I know events are just such a big lead source for all B2B companies. Mm -hmm. And I know you have a big event coming up, VMworld. So I'd love to hear how you've thought about, um, I guess, replacing that, moving that to digital, and just thinking through how you thoughtfully organize it to bring the same value to the company? Sure. Well, let's start a little bit with the kind of higher level of the company before we get to marketing. Um, you know, like all of us, you know, our world is also turned upside down, both personally and professionally. Uh, VMware is a B2B enterprise software cloud services company, big deals. So you're talking, you know, seven digit deals and above, large enterprises, global 2000 kind of customers, um, all of a sudden who went from high level of personal engagement, complex selling, multiple engagements, month long trials and proof of concepts. You can just imagine the complexity and then all of a sudden everybody's working from home. So 
the nature of how we had to carry on of like everybody else had to, to turn completely upside down. Um, our strategy and, and what we did, first of all, we're a tech company. So for the VMware employee base to work remotely like that, I mean, we do it all. We're already 24 by seven, you know, 365 days a year. So that really wasn't an issue for us. That's very different in some sectors and some verticals. But for us, that literally was very, very comfortable. And, and a, literally a, for the, I, I should just qualify that. That's not true of all parts of the world. So we might want to come back to that because in, in some parts of the world, the work from home thing is a very, very real challenge. But anyway, we flipped on that side pretty quickly, but then it became, okay, how do our customers, what can we do to help them? What do they need from us? And their needs changed overnight. So I think the thing we had to do is to adapt very quickly um, to what can we do to help them? And there definitely were parts of our business that were very critical to them and other parts of our business that frankly weren't that interesting to them and how we quickly had to flip that coin to make sure we were helping them in the ways we could, you know, most effectively. And on the enterprise sales side, mm -hmm. because you just made this point around like how high touch that sales cycle is and how long it is. What do you think happens to enterprise sales as a result of this? Again, it's so event heavy and event dependent and in-person dependent. Are you seeing any trends? Do you have any predictions for, for all of us enterprise software company owners? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't think any of us have a perfect crystal ball on this. And I think a lot kind of depends on what is the, the comeback motion. I think to the extent that we're talking about still complex decision-making with multiple stakeholders, face-to-face -face engagement isn't going to be completely replaced. Um, it may take a while to get back to the scale that we had operated in, but when you're doing, you know, 10, 50, 100, 200 million dollar software transactions, you're going to want to be able to, to engage in, and talk with a variety of folks. It's a whole army of people that get involved in these complex deals. So I don't see that completely disappearing, but I can tell you right now, Everybody is an inside salesperson, <laughs> everybody. <laughs> and I think for sellers that are used to big relationship kind of selling, it is a really tricky thing. And they're used to hospitality. They're used to going to the ball game or they're used to having dinner with a customer and having a glass of wine. And, and all of a sudden now they have to build relationship and keep relationship in a much more for them, a somewhat more sterile environment. So I don't, I don't, I can't tell you exactly where we're going to come out on the end. I do expect that that there will be long-term shifts to how people drive, you know, B2B enterprise selling. I don't think it's going to go completely to now remote uh, engagement, but I suspect that it, it will shift. Even before this, though, we knew that our customers were doing roughly, you know, 50, 60, 70 percent of their buying journey before they ever talked to somebody. Um, so the digital demand and the, the need to engage customers very effectively digitally has, has been coming at us for a long, long, long period of time. I don't think that's a huge shock. Well, I think if anything, this crisis has has uh, increased the importance of both marketing and product, right? Like in the absence of those relationships, those two areas of the company 
in a way, you know, shine the most. You have to have value because otherwise these, these sales are just not going to happen in a world like this. But then you, as you mentioned, 60% of the buying journey happens before. So how have you, you mentioned content engagement as something that you look for, but how have you thought about shifting your dollars around? Um, and again, really curious about the event side um, and, and VMworld in particular. How have you moved the money from event marketing to maybe virtual events? Although I would assume that would be cheaper. Um, and if so, where else have you deployed dollars to make up for it? Yeah. So first of all, I mean, I would say the the physical events was the hardest, you know, the thing that's had the most radical impact. We've always had digital, always on kind of marketing and digital campaigns and digital's always been a big part of what we do. So you're right. The events piece is the part that all of a sudden needs complete rethinking. And first of all, we are being, you know, we're, we're very forward looking, but at the same time, you don't want to overcorrect you know, a year ahead of yourself if this, you know, situation changes. So we're trying to be very smart about, okay, let's, let's make decisions through Q2. Let's make decisions now in Q3. And we have been kind of chunking that out in chapters. Um, we immediately, you know, just stopped all face-to-face -face events and we did a couple of things. We either flipped them to digital right away if they were conducive to that. We postponed them. If it was really just the type of intimacy that you needed a face-to-face -face engagement, it was better to just delay. We rescheduled them. Um, or we're now looking later in the year at potential hybrids where maybe in small gatherings we'll have some physical and it will be augmented with digital at scale. So it's been more than VMworld, by the way. We, you know, we do hundreds and hundreds of events around the world. So we've had to really take a very individual look at kind of what was the purpose of the event, who was the target audience, but no physical engagement is happening in Q2, and we've now started to bleed into Q3. On VMworld, we've publicly announced. So VMworld is a user conference, essentially, um, you know, 25,000 strong in the U.S., typically in San Francisco, and then it happens again in Barcelona, about 15,000. Then it rolls all through Asia and hits about another 30, 35,000, all face-to-face. -face. Wow. So... Um, big conferences, I think, are an interesting topic, but what we've gone is for this year, we've said, hey, it's, it's a digital year for this year. Um, don't suspect that's the forever, but we've gone uh, high-scale digital for the VMworld content, and then we're doing some executive stuff later in the year that we'll do with kind of more high-touch engagement stuff. So Robin, I'm assuming you have a pretty big part of your team globally and then some of your team in the US. I'm curious what the split is. And I'm also curious, how have you thought about managing team morale when this crisis has hit us so differently in different regions of the world? Yeah. So we're very distributed in that sense. I mean, a, a global, you know, VMware is like 31,000 plus employees. We're all over the world. And I think that's something that's really important is this, this pandemic and the consequence of working and being in shelter in place is handled very differently around the world. You know, we have a big uh, employees in India. They don't have private work areas in their homes. They share their homes with multiple. They could have grandparents, they could have in-laws, they could have, you know, extended family members. And I mean, we literally have stories of some of our engineers having to carve out like in their bathroom, put curtains up so they could talk to customers because they're actually helping customers solve like building a remote workforce overnight. I mean, really critical technical things. Right. 
and they just don't have that kind of space. I think one thing is we have to be very empathetic that not all cultures are the same and this work from home thing is very different depending on where you live. We've been, I think VMware's, you know, just like you know, Doug was talking about from Hershey, we have a, a great brand internally within our employee base. We care about our people deeply and we first and foremost put their needs first. We sent messages out right from the beginning. You got to take care of yourself, take care of your family, be safe. We're probably through that by now. You know, we've been at this now for several weeks, um, but we're definitely communicating a lot. I mean, I'm kind of mirroring much of what has been said. We're communicating a lot. We're shifting. We got to think about where is the work to be done. And um, I look at it as like an all hands on deck kind of mentality and really encouraging teams to raise their hand. If you're in the physical events team and you're kind of on hold right now, how can you go help your digital partners? You know, cause they're overwhelmed you know, with the amount of work that they have to do. So we've done a lot of that kind of just rejiggering kind of virtual teams to get the resources retooled and put into the right directions. Robin, last question for you. I'm curious what your prediction is around events in general after COVID. Do you think anything big changes for us? Uh, do, we, do we go back to those huge conferences in Vegas and Barcelona and San Francisco? Or do you think we're going to be a little bit more conservative about it? Well, you know, certainly I have no better insight than the next guy. But, you know, my point of view is, my personal view is, yes, we will. Will it happen overnight? No. Will some people potentially lose the appetite that forever for the rest of their lives maybe but i think most people we're we're we are a, a people of networking and tribe right we like our people we like connectivity we like human interaction <clears throat> i think safety precautions could change that we might see new ways of handling you know this bacteria spacing those kinds of things but I personally don't think, I don't think football is going to go and die. You know, the demand to go watch a live football game is not going to disappear. And as long as we're going to big sporting events, we're probably going to be able to justify going to big business events. That's true. Well, I think we're probably all going to be carrying COVID passports soon. So that's the possibility or our little bacteria sprays and our nets and, you know, all kinds of things. But yeah. we'll adapt. We're an adaptable uh, species. Yeah, that's true. Well, thank you so much, Robin. Really appreciate that. Um, so I wanted to move on to our next speaker. Um, next up, we have Barbara. Barbara, welcome. You've already shared a couple of thoughts with us. Welcome back. Hi, Anda. Thanks so much. Um, so Barbara, I want to kick it off by asking you um, a little bit about that marketing and comms balance and intersection. I know that you run both of those functions as well. And when we were talking, you mentioned um, also the balance that you have to play between the messages that are sent in the U.S. versus globally, because John Hancock is obviously um, part of a much larger company. So tell us a little bit about how that um, has shifted or influenced the reaction to the crisis. So, you know, I think in some ways the crisis has enabled the, the two to work even better together. And I think, um, you know, others commented on this. Laura started that conversation. But, uh, you know, if even with our paid media, right, even if there's an adjustment, there's going to, and there was a lag in bringing that, you know, back and figuring out the right ways to bring that back. Um, the, the brand team was very eager to partner with comms and, and find the right way to, to bring messages to the community to, you know, look to, um, you know, align with our customers, but, you know, get that earned media opportunity. And so, 
I think sometimes the, you know, the best thing to bring teams together is an idea that, that everyone loves and everyone can stand behind. So, um, you know, we had this idea um, that we put into, into market. And this is also like our biggest event is sponsoring the Boston Marathon. And um, I mean, that's actually the most dollars I spend on, on thinking for a second, but pretty much just about anything. And so with that being postponed, you know, the team was eager to do something to still acknowledge the day that that usually happens on and, and acknowledge even the whole time of year. So um, this idea that brought comms and marketing together was all around um, gratitude and gratitude for the front lines, um, but really lighting the city blue and very quickly leveraging the relationships we had and the power of comms. Um, we got the mayor mm -hmm. of Boston, the governor of Massachusetts, as well as the Boston Athletic Association that owns the marathon together to, to light the city blue. And, um, you know, we got all of Sons um, of Boston and then um, other places as well to do this. And it was, and we also had like things online where people could download and color and put that in your windows. Because again, I think people are seeking the, that um, camaraderie and that connection to, to wanting to um, not only cheer on the front lines, which was extremely important, but to, to you know, kind of acknowledge that this is a time of year that Boston usually comes together. For, for such a big event. So, so I think, you know, that, that's just one example, but, um, and maybe it goes faster with, um, with the crisis, but I think what um, the brand and the comms team largely have found is that um, they need each other, they do better together, and therefore they, you know, are more likely to invite each other in, um, you know, to the next, to the next round. So I think that's been working well. The, other question you asked was around global. And uh, for us, it's interesting, you know, we have a different brand than the global brand. So we're owned by a Canadian company called Manulife. So sometimes it really feels like we're defining John Hancock initiatives. We're, you know, looking to do things with the John Hancock community and employees. And that feels kind of different from global, but um, we, we have worked hard, especially in the crisis, to be aligned to have one, you know, uh, source of the truth um, and from our messaging. And so, that, you know, that's been true of COVID. You know, every single thing that we do for COVID has a central reviewer on my team and then a central reviewer globally, um, and they work together because, you know, we don't want it. All, you know, certainly it would make sense all over the place. And so, um, while in Boston, quickly John Hancock had given a million dollars to the Boston Resilience Fund. Um, globally, they had set out to do something and it was all around, you know, feeding people, which of course um, was a needed action and it was something that we could connect to as well. So during the days of our gratitude campaign, um, actually between um, what was One Boston Day, which is the anniversary of the Boston uh, Marathon bombings, um, and the day that the marathon would have happened, um, which is a five-day period, we did um, some, something called off, off the Plate, and we were feeding people, feeding the front lines, feeding the hospital workers. And so I think the, the example I bring up is to say that um, sometimes what we end up doing is not exactly what global uh, is thinking about, or we're not always in sync with timing, but, um, but I think because the timing was so compressed here and because the messaging strategy and approvals were so tightly you know, coordinated, 
um, in this case, we, we, were, we had done selling, but we were very um, quick to be able to line up to what Global was doing as well. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I remember when we talked, you mentioned a couple of things that I really wanted to showcase. First, you said that um, from the get-go, you've been employee first and customer second. And I thought that was a really great point. Um, curious as to how you've demonstrated that in your actions, in particular as it pertains to making sure that the team's mental health and overall kind of anxiety levels are manageable. Um, and then kind of curious, the answer to that in conjunction with something else that you said on the call, which is that um, everyone kind of felt that you really can't mess this up. You know, like there's, it's, there's not a lot of room for failure here, especially when you're talking about life insurance and trying to get that to people, right? So how are you dealing with that? How are you making it okay for people to fail um, and not put tremendous pressure on them when it's really not okay for people to fail during this time, especially given what you do? Um, so I feel like you've, you've been in our hallways and I know we had the opportunity to talk, but, um, it, you know, very quickly, what the reason why we were employee first and the reason why that became, uh, the most important thing is, is if our employee base was not, um, equipped to work from home and I don't mean the technology, I mean, um, what are you doing about your kids? Um, you know, do you feel okay about your health and safety? Do you know who to call if you don't feel okay about your health, the health and safety? Um, and so making sure that all those things were um, communicated. And so the specific actions, as you, as you said, um, became a, a cascading series of meetings. And so um, in those meetings where there would be a broadcast and there'd be updates, um, and there would be um, also a chance to ask questions. And so um, from the most senior executive team, um, they would have a meeting um, to the things that our management did locally, which were three touch, touches a week, like a written communication, um, an HR ask anything meeting, and then an open town hall on, uh, on, at the end of the week on Fridays. And we, we did this so that employees all the time could ask questions, um, could, um, could get their questions answered, especially on the Ask Anything HR uh, calls. Every week, there are like 2,000 people that dial in and people ask questions, not all of which have answers to you right now, but there is a forum to ask. You know, people are concerned when they go back to work, what is the setup going to be? Are we still going to be in an agile setup? You know, how, um, how will that work? Who, how will we determine who can go back to work? So, um, so I think the, the focus on employees um, with the combination of um, meetings, messages became clear. And while initially it was all about COVID um, and that continues to have a place, it, we have shifted it. So now we're talking about the business and we're um, talking about the, the things that are getting done. What's our position with customers, you know, what are we selling more of, less of, whatever the messages are. But I think by initially getting that foundation and that trust with employees that we were looking out for their health and safety, um, and then continuing the same pattern of communications, we were able to then, um, when it made sense, bring other, bring other topics to bear. So um, I think that's, that's how that has gone. Um, we do a survey also after um, most big meetings. And so we get a lot of feedback. We hear what's working and what's not. And, you know, an action that you have to take is you have to listen to the feedback. And so um, a, lo a lot of things have been, you know, adjusted based, based on that feedback. 
in in terms of the um, other part of your question, which is, um, you know, what do you do in a situation where people feel like they can't fail? You know, no one wants to fail their customers. No one, you know, um, wants to be in a situation. We, we have death claims coming in. We have death claims coming in, obviously, I mean, because of COVID. Um, and and those are, those are, you know, family members that can't be together with their loved ones um, to mourn um, people in their family that are passing away. And so it takes a tremendous amount of, of empathy. And I think when we think about not failing is you don't want to fail those people who are calling. Um, and in general, I think in a, in a company, you have to have a culture where it's okay to try different things and it's okay to try different ideas, um, go to market with different things, different, you know, um, you know, even different things for employees and you, and you change and, and you, um, it's okay in that, in those settings to fail. I think it's our frontline workers that feel, um, the most pressure to be able to, to help those customers. And so in a sense, it's, um, no one's punishing them. No one's getting in trouble. You know, um, every, of course everyone is automatically trying their best but um, it's just it's just about that um, that empathy and that feeling of wanting to do right by the customers. That makes sense. Well, the the flip side of that is you have just so much purpose in what you do if you're working in in those areas. And um, so I'm I'm happy to hear that that is true for for the teams across the board. Um, Barbara, thank you so much for sharing your views. Hopefully, you stay on for a few more questions for for, for the audience because you have a few that are directed at you. Um, and we're going to ask a few after our next guest. Um, so next up, I want to, thank you, thank you again. Um, next up, I want to welcome Rich. There was a little bit of back and forth as to whether your audio is working, so let's check that first. Welcome, Rich. Testing one, two, three. There we go. Right, okay. amazing. So I saw your face light up when we showed the results of the, of the survey that we did before, the poll, because um, you are the global head of content for BlackRock. <laughs> and so increased content consumption is music to your ears. Um, content leaders also happen to be my favorite people. And so I'm very happy to be talking to you today. Thank you so much for joining. It's great to be here. And I just, you know, I felt I, I didn't take part in that poll, but obviously um, I would have viewed it. I know. I increased my Netflix consumption over the past six weeks, so I completely identified with the uh, 49%. Well, I'm sure everyone was referring to BlackRock content when they were supporting that. So. Of yeah, of course. Um, so I wanted to ask you, first and foremost, how have you seen the role of content evolve since the crisis? Have you seen it increase in importance, decrease in importance, same thing? Yeah, I mean, I could speak for, you know, from the perspective of a content leader at, um, you know, a financial services firm uh, from sort of our master brand level, um, where we're not really out there selling product, we're not hawking product, we're more about, you know, top of funnel thought leadership that sort of positions our insights uh, for the mar on markets, uh, you know, for social audiences. Um, what I see, uh, you know, both from us and from, you know, the competitor set is just, um, frankly, the type of content that you would expect to come out of um, financial services firms at this time. It's sort of our bread and butter. It's sort of this is sort of, um, you know, when there are financial crises, this is when you can put the smart insights that these places have out to the public. 
Um, so I've seen a lot of uptick on that from, um, uh, from other banks and uh, from other financial institutions, certainly um, landing in my social feeds, but I'm probably their target audience, so that's why. Um, and at BlackRock, it really, the timing was, um, uh, was something because we, uh, you know, if this had happened uh, even four or five months ago, we would not have had the capacity uh, for part of this in-house production newsroom that we built uh, to actually output this content. So um, we've been able to keep up. Uh, I think we've surprised ourselves in uh, our ability to do so. But I think, you know, to, to answer your question, I think an increase in content around market volatility and what it means for uh, consumers, investors, the public um, is what I've seen and what I'm looking at the most. That and, um, you know, the, the Tiger Show on Netflix. <laughs> the Tiger Show. <laughs> I swear to God, everyone was telling me you have to start watching it. And so I did, but it just made me more sad and more depressed <laughs> about the current time. So, yeah. so I stopped. I, yeah. I now I'm rewatching Marvelous Mrs. Maisel um, oh. because it makes me happy. It's such a great TV show. Anyway, um, as you as you've you were just talking about your internal content student, I'm curious, what are some of the the lessons you've learned about agility in terms of content production? since the crisis, I'm assuming you've all had to go obviously work remotely. How are you making videos? How are you creating content during this time? Yeah, I mean, again, uh, this is, uh, we have the capability in-house even four months ago because this is a new build for Mastermind at BlackRock to be able to have this in-house production capability that uh, churns out content relating to our thought leadership uh, from around the firm and uh, content connected to our reputation and sort of the uh, impact we have on society as well as content content around sort of the people BlackRock more for Instagram. Um, so we, again, when I said earlier, we surprised ourselves, we truly did. We are working remotely. Uh, we have, uh, you know, two producers on the team uh, who are working remotely with the businesses in touch, finding out, you know, story hunting. Um, and then we've got, you know, one and a half, two editors um, who uh, are working remotely as well. And even that, comes in a, in a regulated industry with its own set of challenges just because uh, uh, because of firewalls and because of um, you know what you could take out of the building and everything but we were able to work uh, to get home studios uh, done for these editors so that we were able to stay uh, agile and actually produce more content than we would have produced otherwise had this not happened and you were talking a bit about uh, just mentioned compliance and I know we talked a bit about this um, compliance when, when people hear this word they're like oh god compliance it's going to delay everything how does it work for BlackRock and and also how has the crisis changed approval for content um, you know it's funny I was, I was talking to someone earlier today I think um, uh, back in January uh, Larry Fink our CEO sent this uh, letter out um, you know it's declaring putting a foot in the sand about sustainability right a stake in the ground on sustainability is uh, sort of our standard for investing going forward sustainable investing and that was a huge effort internally to, to you know get that uh, amplification off the ground from a variety of teams around BlackRock um, and someone was saying today earlier today that's sort of 
was a great forcing mechanism for us to work together. And uh, without realizing it at the time, late last year and early January, I think really prepped us well for um, what we're dealing with now. And compliance was part of that. So um, to build an in-house production capability at a place like BlackRock, which hadn't really done it at this, uh, at this level before, um, you know, took a close partnership with compliance to let them know the type of content we wanted to put out, what the timeline would be, uh, and then work together for the system uh, on a system to make that happen um, faster and more in real time. And we got to a place by the time we piloted our uh, initial video series, um, we got to a place where we were able to uh, work with them to agree what could be released in which markets. And then our sustainability announcement uh, back in January um, was a very complicated rollout, uh, different languages, um, different, uh, you know, dealing with different regulators in different countries and what you could say, what you can't say, different, you know, the amount of disclosures, I've never seen so many, so much disclosure language in different languages. Um, so, uh, we were able to take that forth and uh, it really has not been an issue. I mean, we sort of had that system. Uh, it was a really, it became a really well-oiled system so that by the time we all left the office and are all working from home, uh, it is, um, it is really, it's, it's just built in. We actually don't give it a second thought. They are uh, truly, truly great partners and important partners. So, um, Rich, we have a question here for you, um, and it, it's actually talking about the the announcement around sustainability, um, but it's also making a point that I think is really interesting, and I'd love for you to, to answer. I hope I'm not putting you on the spot. Sure. Um, there's there's uh, an implication that brand marketing dollars compete for dollars that go to revenue-generating businesses. And I think in particular content, because I talk to so many content leaders, I see them oftentimes struggling to advocate for the importance of it. Um, how have you thought about it? You know, obviously since the crisis, I think we've all seen increase in the production of content, content leaders just being on the front lines of this in many ways. But how are you thinking about ROI now versus a few months ago is that going to change also after the crisis or not? Um, so again, speaking from, uh, you know, BlackRock's a very uh, big place with a lot of businesses, but, you know, speaking strictly from the corporate brand level uh, and, and the content team uh, functions under global marketing, um, we don't, you know, it, it, it's true. We don't have a big budget, relatively speaking. Um, although, uh, I, I, at the same time, I can't complain. We have enough budget to get out the stuff that we are uh, able to produce now with a little paid behind it as well, which is a bonus. So we can make sure that we're getting our uh, videos and podcasts into the feeds of people we think would be uh, most receptive to them. Um, so it's, it's clear that we are not going to drive sales from, you know, month to month because of a video that we put out. And that is actually not the object of a video. Our, we're in this uh, sort of for um, you know, longer term play so that BlackRock can come to be known in the marketplace as a place where you can get, for example, smart insights around markets and the economy over time um, as our competitor, as many of our competitors are doing. So um, our KPI, I don't think is gonna change much from that perspective coming out of this. I think it's still gonna be you know, general, um, you're looking for favorability, uh, trust, uh, you know, our, our reputation is very important. And really, um, you know, we have buy-in from 
the top, uh, you know, from, from, you know, top leadership about, I think, mark, global marketing in general, uh, realizing that the assets we produce, uh, be it in support of brand, be it in support of content, are at ultimately an expression of the firm's purpose, which is to help more and more people experience financial well-being. And that is the game. And um, we're certainly not feeling any sort of uh, pressure for short-termism, so to speak, where the assets we're producing, videos, podcasts, uh, will you know, look to three months from now and hopefully lead to a spike in sales. It's a much longer-term play, and that has not changed as of yet. I like that. I think content for high-consideration categories and products, content is really the performance marketing of these, of these categories. So, um, Rich, thank you so much for sharing all of that. I think Rachel wants to take one more speaker, our final speaker, and then open up for Q&A to everyone. We have a bunch of questions coming in. So, Rachel, yes. over to you. Yes, and Rich, if you work with uh, Frank Cooper and Alex Chung, I started my career with both of them. Awesome. So, great people. Just happened to be in touch with both of them today. Oh. Remotely, of course. Send them my love. So I wanted to throw one final question to everyone because this is very much in the theme of what we were hoping to also touch upon today um, around just mental health and keeping our team sane. Um, a question from Marissa. Do you think baking in breaks at a systems level is better than on an individual level? Does that make sense? So like mandated breaks. Mm -hmm. So we talked about it in, on our team because I, I, we, I, in the beginning, people weren't taking breaks and it was, I thought it was a problem and people weren't exercising and people were complaining they weren't eating right. Like all the symptoms were right there. Um, and, and we thought like, you know, um, what could we put on the calendar? What could we block um, so that, so that we would protect people's time to take those breaks. And so while doing too much, felt like because people had meetings at different times was was difficult. What we at least started with and really try to hold by is nothing over lunch. So from 12 to one, um, nothing. And, um, and and I have a rule with my team that like there's no emails at night and you know, unless there's like, you know, a financial emergency and for marketing and someone needs us. Um, you know, we can be reached, but um, you know, people should be shutting down and, and, um, and so giving people their evenings um, back. And so I don't know that we've gone all the way there, um, but we've done that. We also have someone on our team that's taught an exercise class um, in the morning. And so people can, you know, opt into that type of break. Um, and then it becomes like blocked on your calendar. But I think in general, it's a very good idea. Thank you. Um, I, I agree, by the way, we decided to do a mandatory break. Um, we decided to do it after lunch because we thought we can't tell people, oh, we're actually giving you, a, you know, your lunchtime back. <laughs> you were always supposed to have lunch. And so we wanted to try to do something on top of that. Uh, the difficulty is that we also have teams that are distributed and in different time zones. So we said, look, this is like the mandatory break. But if you need to take another hour, that's totally fine. I will say like I work all the time and I think, um, you know, I, I kind of pity the leadership team for having to fend off all my slacks and emails at any hours of the weekend and the day. But 
I so appreciate having just no notifications pop up on my phone between 1 and 2 p.m. It's so nice. And I can actually, you know, focus on doing the work that I want or go for a run or whatever. And so even with myself, I've kind of been grateful for the fact that this is happening and I've taken it more seriously as a result. Um, what about you, Rich? Essie, any I thoughts just, on I, I mean, I just... Um... I, I'm not sure the mandated break would work at a place like ours just for a variety of reasons. Uh, I think it's a really good idea. I think what is important and sorry, incumbent upon us as leaders, though, is to model sort of appropriate behavior, especially in times like this. So recognize that, you know, this is a, you know, it goes back to empathy. I think particularly for analysts and associates, I think, recognizing putting yourselves in their shoes this is the first real crisis they've been through in their working lives which you forget i've i've been through i, I did 2008 um stuff before then as a journalist um and uh recognizing the importance that we actually are working harder in this setup and our commutes have gone but that time with the commute has been taken up by phone calls and you know now the days are starting earlier and they're ending later um so I'm trying to mandate that, uh, you know, in, we're being encouraged to take two extra days off in April and May, and I'm just really trying to force that on the team. Um, but more importantly, model it and actually do it myself. And when I'm off for a day, I say I'm off, always reachable, but will not be coming onto calls, which, um, you know, I know that the company will be fine if I don't join a call on a day when we're supposed to be off. And then I think that gives permission to the team to be able to feel like they could do it as well. So like it's a win. It's, yeah. yeah. It's a good idea. You have to model the behavior. It has to come from the top. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, well, I know we're over time and I imagine everyone has places to be wine to drink because at least it's 607 in New York. Um, so another amazing conversation. Thank you to all of our speakers. I learned a tremendous amount and actually took a lot of notes this session. I think some of the things that we heard on the, uh, that's been consistent with some of the weeks, you know, we as corporate America um, and as business leaders have been talking about digital transformation forever. The reality is COVID-19 was the thing that transformed our companies um, from the way that we communicate internally, how we're going to market, whether you're in B2B or you're in B2C, this is absolutely going to be the defining moment where customer behavior has changed. Uh, I think what we continue to hear at a leadership level is that it is so important for us as leaders to over-communicate right now. Repetition, repetition, figuring out ways to touch base with our teams at a macro and a micro level to really ensure that they feel connected I think the thing that was really interesting this week, Anda, versus other weeks that really stood out to me is how mission-driven companies need to be right now and to actually ensure that that ladders up to the greater brand promise um, because that's what's going to galvanize their teams. And in terms of like what's most important to teams right now, I think we heard it from everyone, uh, is that they, they want to feel like their work matters right now and that they have job security. And there were a lot of great mic drop moments, um, but I, I think a few things that stood out to me was, was this idea of what you say and what you do. And 
you know, another person also said, that was Etsy's words, but uh, another speaker prior talked about how COVID has kind of cut out the corporate BS. It's really about what you do now that really, really matters. And so I want to thank everyone. There were so many learnings. You can find us here next Thursday, 4 to 6 p.m. EST time. Uh, and Anders, did I leave anything out? No. Um, I think what one thing that stood out to me was just this question I wrote down. What's the most important thing you could do? I love that example from uh, Vinu, who was sharing how in his FedEx days on Christmas, he like everyone just went to the, what was it, the shipping dock, or I think, and everyone was basically doing the thing that was most important for the company. I think we all have moments like that happening a lot during these days. And so this idea of like, regardless of what your job is, just do what is most important for the company right now. I like that um, as a galvanizing force for the team. So that was the only other thing I had, but this was a great conversation. Thank you guys so much for coming on. Um, donating your time to the community. I know everyone appreciates it. And yeah, we'll see you here next week. Thanks for listening to this Notch and McMac Roundtable. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and are staying safe and healthy. If you would like to learn more, please visit us at notch.com slash COVID. And if you have any suggestions for future guests or topics, please let us know by emailing onda at prosandcontent.co. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.